two weeks ago, uh, uh, well, last week I was um, teaching over at Calvary Chapel, Southeast Portland, and uh, uh, caught Harvey's uh, message, um, and I was just blessed that God has given us uh, men who are apt to teach, and um, just blessed that I could, uh, you know, I, one of the things that's true as far as being a pastor is you always want to reach in before you reach out. And and I love having people in the body that I can reach and, and ask to come and to trust with the pulpit, because that's a very serious thing. And um, I was blessed to be able to have him do that. And then Two weeks ago, remember, we began John chapter 18, and uh, we went through the first verse, and then we saw that virtually the rest of our time together was what happened be between verse 1 and verse 2, uh, looking at the Garden of Gethsemane, and where John goes straight into the arrest, Jesus, which is what we're going to cover today. There is so much more that was going on. Um, we looked at that. We looked at the agony of love, if you remember, and how Jesus was in absolute agony there in the garden, uh, knowing that it was time for him to take the cup. We talked about that. We'll talk about it a little bit more this morning. Uh, the cup of what? The cup of God's wrath. The cup of wrath. And all through the Gospels, you see Jesus using a couple of sayings. My hour is not yet come, and it's not yet time for me to take the cup. And now, as we approach the pinnacle of his ministry, really, I mean, yes, he's fulfilled a, a marvelous ministry and, and done many things, signs, wonders, great things, great teaching, all in his public ministry. And then the the last five hours with his guys before they went to the garden, there in the upper room and beyond. And as he begins to take the cup, as he begins to uh, experience the things that were set before him, knowing full well these things come about. And see, as we go into the text this morning, I want you to read in that he has perfect control from the get-go. Is there something going on with the sound? Huh, okay. Anyway. Uh, so he has perfect control of the situation. I'm going to start in verse 1 again uh, for context. Remember, it's probably somewhere between 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, they have come across the Kidron Ravine. In verse 1, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The words that he had just spoken in John 17, where he is praying, the, the great high priestly prayer uh, is what it's called, what we look at it as, because it was indeed the Lord's prayer there. Uh, he'd spoken these words. He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And so John doesn't name the garden. The other Gospels do. Uh, and, and we know that it's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it, it's the Gethsemane meaning olive press for crushing the olives. And indeed, this was a place of crushing for Jesus this night. As he agonized with his men, they kept, remember, they kept falling asleep and, and he'd say, watch and pray that you don't enter in temptation. And, 
and they'd come back to them, and, and they'd be snoozing away three times. Uh, not going to belabor that again, but the, we looked at now after verse 1, we looked at the synoptic Gospels. Now, there's the Gospel of John, and over 90% of the Gospel of John is unique to that particular work, to the Gospel of John. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptic Gospels because they're there is a great deal of information that is overlaid, that is shared between the three. They have much in common. John's gospel being unique because John is portraying Jesus as God. He's looking at the deity of Christ all the way through this gospel, and that's where his focus is. It's not that he left things out on accident. It's where his focus is. So as we've been looking at this, we blended the, the synoptics, uh, between verses 1 and 2, as I mentioned, because uh, it's so for us to understand that he didn't just go and show up at the garden and get arrested. That's why I wanted to take the time and walk through those other accounts, because it's very, very important that we understand there was a lot going on here in the garden. Uh, I shared last time, too, that we look in the Bible, we see two gardens where... Uh, Satan's emissary, the serpent, in Genesis. Judas, in this account, uh, is there to test. And then Jesus, the second Adam, was tested. He could have bailed at any time. He was fully man. We have to realize that as he goes through these things, he's experiencing all of the things that a man would, the extreme stress, to the point of blood, bursting capillaries in his face. And, and so you've got to realize that this is not an easy thing for him because he's God. Yes, he is fully God and fully man at the same time. And yet, marvelous account here as we look at this, that he, the second Adam, now in the garden, will succeed where Adam failed. Now, I'd love to take a side trip and rabbit trail into Romans because it's a great exposition that the Apostle Paul does in the book of Romans on just that. He, he talks about Jesus as literally the second Adam. And, and through one man's sin entered the world, and yeah, we don't, we're not guilty of Adam's sin, but we do inherit his nature. And that's not a good nature. And so through one man, I'm rabbit trailing, aren't I? Um, <laughs> And through one man, sin was dealt with once for all. So anyway, that's what, what we're looking at here in the garden. Verse 2, And Judas betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. It mentioned that, if you were with us, that this was his meeting place. This was his gathering place. When they were finished with the events of the day, they went to the garden. They didn't have communication like we do, so... They had to have prearranged meeting spots, and the Garden of Gethsemane was Jesus' prearranged meeting spot all through his ministry. They were meeting there all the time. If you're looking for Jesus and it's after dark, he's not going to be in the temple. They close the temple gates at dark, at sunset. Then you're probably going to find him at the Garden of Gethsemane, unless he's gone over the hill to his friends in Bethany and the whole deal there. But anyway, verse 3 then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Interesting. Judas, it says here that Judas was the one who had received the troops. This is utter betrayal. 
This isn't just, I'm going to stand on the sidelines. He is a full, willing participant in this, in Jesus being betrayed to these guys. Now, interesting, where it talks about a detachment of troops, in the New American Standard, that word detachment is translated cohort, or a Roman cohort. And a, a Roman cohort, excuse me, the way that they divided their troops was a Roman legion. You've heard the Roman legions. A Roman legion was 6,000 men. A cohort was a tenth of a legion, 600 men. Now, just off to the northwest corner of the Temple Mount was a place called the Fortress Antonia. And that was where the Romans had their headquarters for Jerusalem, for the surrounding area of Judea. And it was very important to understand that because they really were the ones who were in charge. The religious leaders uh, were a puppet government under Rome. The Sanhedrin had been set up, but the Romans are here. They send the Romans, it says, a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests. That would have been the temple guard. So you've got upwards of 600 men, and, and it could have been a partial cohort. You know, I, nobody knows. I mean, I think about 600 people. That's like a military assault. <laughs> you know, they're, they're mounting a major campaign here for one guy with torches and lanterns and weapons. For one guy who has never lifted a finger to anybody in his life. And these, the religious leaders were so incensed, and they were so put off by Jesus. They were so against anything that he stood for, and they had hashed a plot time before to kill him. And, and, and we'll look at Caiaphas's role in this as we go along. So it's a portion of a cohort or a cohort, up to 600 people, plus the temple guard. Regardless of the numbers, this is like a, as, as massive overkill as you could get. Uh, Jesus knew what he was having to go do. And if one person had shown up to arrest him, he essentially would have held out his wrists because he knew what was before him. They didn't. They didn't get it. They, and when he does miraculous things here, they still don't get it. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? As I mentioned, Jesus knows what's going on. Why would he ask this, knowing that they're seeking him? A couple of things. The first is I believe he was deflecting. Uh, he was protecting his men. He was drawing their attention away from his men because he had, you know, 11 guys there. And, and drawing attention away from them, from the soldiers, and onto himself. So he says, whom do you seek? Getting their attention. The other thing is, I believe he was drawing them out and their evil intentions because they have to answer Jesus, the Nazarene. Um, another thing I think about this is, you know, this whole thing had been, I mean, this was all predestined. We've talked about predestiny and election and all that stuff. And, and I'm not going to go there, but this was known. This, this whole scene was decided in the court of heaven long before an eternity passed that this is what God would do. And, and so Jesus is asserting and reinforcing his foreknowledge, knowing why they're there, knowing they're coming to specifically arrest him. 
Verse 5, they answered him uh, and said, Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. I am not going to. Now, I am he. Is it, you'll see he is in italics. Uh, and, and that's added for clarification by translators. And it shouldn't be there. So it occurs three times here. And I'm not going to explain it every time. I'm just going to drop he off. Uh, because what Jesus is doing here. Um, He's letting them know who he is. It says, continuing in verse 5, And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. So, interesting. Judas, I have always puzzled over him. How could someone be so close to Jesus, to be with him daily, to see him do fantastic miracles to see him raise a guy from the dead to see him feed 5,000 people to see him tell the guy take up your pallet and walk to see him tell the guy go down and wash in the pool of Siloam and, and you'll get your sight back and as the guy washes the mud from his eyes that Jesus had made with his spit he starts to see water for the first time how could all of that be experienced by this guy and for his heart to be so hard, so cold, to not identify with Jesus, it, it boggles my mind, folks, that he had stood on the other side of Jesus in his heart for a long time. Remember John says he used to pilfer the money and he was a thief and all of that. And, and here, completely sold out to the enemy. And again, we're told in the other Gospels, it says that Satan entered him, entered his heart. So he's completely sold out. Now he's literally standing on the other side of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Remarkable. Verse 6. Now when he said to them, I am, uh, I am, see, I almost did it the other way. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love this verse. There's our hero in the garden. 600 men from the Romans, a whole bunch more from the temple guard and Judas. And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, I am. And he literally knocked them all on their keisters. Every one of them. And this is just a scene. I, I, I hope we get to see it again. I, you know, reruns, you know, I hope there's reruns in heaven because it's just so bold. Uh, and what he's talking about here, folks, is in Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 14, Jesus is asked by Moses, who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? And, and, and or I'm, Moses had asked the burning bush. I'm sorry, I don't remember what I said. Um, Deacon Justice. Um, he had said, who shall I tell Pharaoh that sent me? And, the, and God speaks to him and says, you tell him that I am sent you. And what's implied in that is fill in the blank, because we see that God reveals his nature and his character through a number of I am statements in the Old Testament. John reveals Jesus' nature and character through a number of I am statements here in the Gospel of John. It's one of the primary themes of this Gospel. 
And in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which they would have had available to them in that day, not to the common man, the religious guys kind of kept it to themselves, but it would say, Ego Ami. And that's the word, that's the covenant name for God. So when Jesus is saying, who do you seek? These guys say, Jesus and Nazarene, and he says, I am, and he knocks them all over. He is demonstrating one thing. You are not taking me by force. There's no way that you're taking me by force. I have complete control over this situation. There is nothing that is going to happen to me that is outside of what is predetermined to happen. And, and I picture these guys, you know, they're getting up and they're trying to dust the grass off of their, themselves. And, 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 and Jesus is still just standing there. Here's something that I came across that has to do with this. The question on the miraculous nature of this incident is not whether it was a miracle at all, for it is evident that it must be regarded as one, but whether it were an act specially intended by our Lord or as a result of the superhuman dignity of his person and the majestic calmness of his reply. In other words, did he do it on purpose or was it because of who he is? And when he said the name of God, they just got knocked over. I tend to believe it's probably a bit of both, but I just thought that was a great quote. Uh, one or the other, he had the intended result with these guys. What, again, what kind of blows me away is that they're not getting up and going, you know, maybe we came to the wrong garden. We got to go. Uh, because I would think, I mean, if somebody came up to me and, and he spoke, and I went flying backwards. I think, yeah, I probably don't want to mess with this guy. Um, but they continue. <laughs> Spiritual blindness is incredible, isn't it? I talk with people sometimes, and it's like, you really don't want to believe. And, and, and generally, folks, and I don't care if you're talking about creation evolution. I don't care if you're talking about you know whatever. What you'll find is that people are not as interested in the right answer as in finding reasons not to believe because that's what it's about. It's simple believing that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has come and accomplished what he came and accomplished, what he did. It's the person and the work of Christ. And you can distill the gospel down to just that. What did he do and who was he? Who is he? Because if you change this, that's why the, the, the central doctrines to the Christian faith are not up for grabs. Most of the time, if somebody has some silly idea about something, I'm just going to, if I, I, won't, I won't say, hey, that's silly, but I might think it. But, you know, most of the time, if somebody has an idea and it doesn't have to do with major deal, major doctrines, I'm just going to let it go. It's like, you know, they can think what they want, all that. But when it comes to the person or the work of Christ, no. I'm going to address that. I'm going to correct because, I mean, we have to live our lives by something. And if that something isn't the word of God as revealed to us through the spirit of God, we've got nothing. And so it's very important that we understand the person and the work. And, and hopefully in your personal devotion, your personal time reading the Bible or personal study, you are committed to understanding the person and the work of Christ because that is central to your understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and what he accomplished. 
verse 7, then he asked them again and said, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus the Naz uh, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> They're dusting themselves off. Uh, and Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. You can read this verse one of two ways. Like he's saying, well, pretty please, you know, just take me and leave these guys alone, please. I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think he's asking them here. I sincerely believe, and the structure of the sentence, I sincerely believe he's telling them. And they're going, okay. <laughs> because he, he's saying, you know what? I have told you who I am. Let these guys go. Just let them go. And, and, and he's making a statement. He's not asking a question here. Uh, verse 9, it, it, that the saying might be fulfilled of which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I've not lost any. I've lost, have lost none. It's interesting. They didn't fall on the ground the second time. And so that's why I tend to believe that Jesus had control over even that. Um, it's not a magic formula, guys. Uh, I, I love the fact that Jesus healed people in different ways whenever he healed them. Because, you know, we would we would duplicate it. We'd have a denomination named after it. You know, it, 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 we'd get silly with it. Man tends to try to can the things of God. And God won't be put in a box. He won't do it. And so that he did that once, and he asked them twice, the second time they didn't fall over, shows me that he, again, is controlling this entire scene. When he says that of those whom you gave me, I've lost none, uh, he's quoting uh, his own words that we have recorded for us in, in John 6.39 and also in uh, chapter 17, verse 12, uh, in the last chapter that we looked at uh, when he was praying. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. <laughs> Love that. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter, Peter, Peter. What are we going to do with you? I love Peter. I, I just love this guy. And he's thinking he's doing the right thing. But he's also demonstrating that he is totally inept at understanding what the right thing to do would be. And that's because, guys, again, I'm not going to pick on him. I'm really not. I see me in Peter. I, I know so many times, I remember Chuck Smith, he had an associate pastor named Romaine. The guy had been an ex-military drill instructor with the Marine Corps. And this guy, he was a, a big, rough teddy bear is what he meant it to. And I used to, when I'd go to pastor's conferences, if he had a, a talk, I always went to Romaine's talks. And, and he shared one time about having them tow a car off of the lot at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And that car's been there for three days. You need that junker out of here. And, you know. and then uh, he gets a call from Pastor Chuck saying, you know what happened to that car? Somebody donated it, and I have a family that needs it. <laughs> and he'd already had it impounded. But, you know, sometimes well-intentioned, we can do goofy things, huh? That's Peter. I so relate to him. I, I love what my son-in-law said. He said, you know, he proves to me that God sets the bar pretty low. <laughs> and I think that's true. Um, so 
he cuts off this guy's ear. It, he takes his sword out and he strikes the high priest's servant and cuts, his, cuts off his right ear. And this guy named Malchus. Interesting, in the Gospels, this is recorded in the other Gospels, but nobody identifies who it is except John. John says, and Peter is the one. <clears throat> Peter did that. Um, and I don't know what kind of relationship. I'm sure they had a good relationship, but you know what kind of play would bring that about? The other thing that's interesting about this, now most people predominantly are right-handed, correct? So here's Peter. He pulls out his sword. And he cuts, it would be almost impossible for him to cut off the guy's right ear. He would have to slice across, and it would be the wrong angle. The only thing that really makes sense here is that Peter came up behind him, pulled out his sword, and sliced his right ear off. I that's just that's interpret I'm way into interpretation on this. The Bible doesn't say, but it makes the most sense physically as to how this would come about. And, and it just demonstrates to me that this isn't really a great big display of courage on Peter's behalf to seek up behind a guy and cut off his ear. The other thing is that this is Jesus' last healing, and I think it's remarkable that Malchus is a Greek. He's a Gentile. And, and it's just, it's just a, an interesting side note. The other thing, too, about this is John knew who this guy was. And we'll see further in the text that he is actually connected with the high priest's household. He's known to Caiaphas, or to Annas, and, and he's known to these guys, and he actually gets Peter in when they go uh, to that place. i got a couple of slides I'm going to show you. The first, this is called a Machaira, and this is a, a, a it's, it's not a replica, you can tell. <laughs> this is a first century small sword. It's a Greek small sword. Uh, the one that Peter used may have been like this, with a bend in it like that. That was predominantly what they used, because they could use it for whacking things or poking things. Um, this particular one, if somebody poked me, I would definitely need a tetanus shot. But the point is, is that I want to correct your, your thinking. If you're thinking that Peter pulled out this you know, sword, and it goes tromping up to Malchus, and he cuts off his ear. No, it was a small, it was like a large knife. And so that's what it looked like. Now, compared to that, a Roman, large Roman sword is called a gladius. And this is why they call it that, because gladiators use them. And they were big, broad swords that, let's just say, this is what the Romans used to solve almost every problem they had. <laughs> they did. Seriously? I mean, yeah, it's humorous to think about, but that's, that's what they did. If they were upset about something, they would just simply go into town and start using their swords. And they maintained an iron fist of justice with the people in the conquered nations that they were ruling. Uh, and this is primarily, this is their weapon of choice for doing that. So Peter didn't have this big honking sword. He had a, a, like a large knife, um, maybe you know a little longer than a bayonet, uh, and he pulled it out, and that's what he used. And and I, I did some checking in the Greek words, Machaira, uh, and that is the Greek word for sword here. Um, and it's it's the Greek sword. It's very John's very specific in the way that he writes this. Anyway, um, so in verse eleven, 
we read, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Again, this is the time for him to drink the cup. He knows that he is squarely looking at the cross in just a short time, in just a few hours. And, and, and he's saying, Peter, this is not the time. Verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And, and, and. Okay, so they have all of these guys. Yeah, we're going to get him. The soldiers, the captain, the commander, he would be like the commander, probably the commander of the forces at the Fortress Antonia, because they were looking at this as a big deal. This is a big arrest. This would be like sending out the SWAT team. I mean, they're coming to this guy with swords and or, or with, with um, weapons and lanterns and torches. And they've got hundreds of guys. And, and you know, they're doing a, like a drag net on the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is not, he's not resisting them in the least. He's demonstrating he has the power to speak a word. Their hearts would stop. And yet he knows what he has to do. So I want to take a minute and not blow my nose. But I want to take a minute and talk about meekness. Matthew eleven twenty nine says, uh, Jesus speaking says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. It used to be, before I became a Christian, I would think about somebody who was meek. And I would think about, you know, like the skinny tall guy with a bad haircut and a, a plastic pocket protector, you know, and, you know, some odd pens. And uh, spent all his time at the library. That's not meek. <laughs> That's whatever. Just a guy that likes plastic po pocket protectors. But, but truly, what... Meekness is, the biblical definition of meekness is power under control. Jesus here is being intentionally meek. He has the power to change this whole situation up in a heartbeat, but he's not. The power that he has is under control. He sees the greater good of what he needs to accomplish as opposed to his need to get vengeance on these guys uh, in the moment. He's not going to bypass the cross here. He knows what he's come to do. And so he's acting very meekly here, knowing that he has the power to change it. He just demonstrated it. And when he knocked all those guys over, I mean, the same hands that could heal the sick and raise somebody from the dead, they're not going to be bound. They're not going to be held with ropes. I mean, that's ridiculous to even consider. Verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. This would be his first trial. We're going to look at, um, and we're going to get into it more next week. I have a handout I'll give you next week that has a whole deal. The six illegal trials plus a public referendum um, that Jesus went through, three uh, by the Jews, with each one, they found him guilty, three by Rome, and with each one, he was found not guilty. Uh, and modern-day Judaism, uh, the, some of the people in Jewish circles assert that the Romans are the ones who had convicted Jesus. And you can see by the text, 
That's not so. Now, four of the trials are here in the Gospel of John, but we will take some side journeys and we'll look at all six and we'll go into some details about why they were illegal and how they went about this stuff. I mean, it's remarkable that he could go through six and still be placed on display in front of the people with choose between him and Barabbas, uh, which is what Pilate did. And we'll also look at the prophetic significance of, Barabbas, or of Pilate uh, declaring him completely blameless. And there's great prophetic significance in that, uh, going all the way back to Exodus. So here's Annas. He had been the high priest. He became the high priest in the year 6, and he reigned for about 10 years. In the year 15, he was deposed uh, because he was a crook and because he was too much of a challenge for Rome. Now, he had five sons and one son-in-law. One son-in-law's name is Caiaphas, and he is the high priest that year. But Annas is the power behind the throne. You've got to understand politics in Israel in the first century. As I mentioned, the Sanhedrin is the ruling body in Israel. They're the ones who uh, were, they were absolutely governed by Rome, and there were things they could do and couldn't do. We'll see that in the trials. They couldn't have someone executed. That had to be a Roman decision. However, um, they were able to adjudicate different things, and, and that's what they were doing. That's what they would do here. So this first trial with Annas, Annas has not got any official position in the, in the nation at all. Uh, he had not been high priest, but his five sons and Caiaphas, all six of the men that were underneath him, were puppets of his. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple, when he went in and he turned over the tables and he did all that, made the whip of cords and all? That was called Annas's Bazaar. And that was Annas's big money-making deal for Passover. He made bank on the backs of the people. They used to have it over on the Mount of Olives because the temple precincts were considered to be holy, sacred. He didn't care about that, didn't care about the things of God. He cared about lining his pockets. And so he moved it from the Mount of Olives into the temple precincts themselves, which is why Jesus went in and cleansed it. It was like, what are you doing with all of this? Annas was the guy behind it. So they're taking him to Annas. And I... I uh, you know me, I like to locate geography. I couldn't find any photos uh, as I was finishing this up. But um, on Mount Zion, we looked at where the upper room is. If you folks remember, when we looked at the upper room, it was way up the top of Mount Zion. Just down the hill on Mount Zion is um, Annas' house on the right and Caiaphas' house on the left. I've been to both. And, uh, and we'll look at this. When we get to Caiaphas, I'll show you something. There's a hole. There is a, a dungeon in Caiaphas' house, which is where, actually where tradition tells us is where they held Jesus. Uh, been down in the hole there, too. And it's, they've put stairs in there now for tourists to be able to go down. And when I was with um, a group uh, of guys uh, in Israel, we went down into this, this hole. It's called the Sacred Pit. Uh, interesting. So... Annas is, they're bringing it to him because he, he's like this malignant, cruel, unscrupulous guy, uh, and he's leading the charge in getting Jesus arrested and, um, and getting him executed. So 
He's the first guy they go to. They go to the boss. He's like the godfather back then. I mean, he's the one that they go to. He was the ringleader. Verse 14, now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember back in chapter 11 when Caiaphas, when they're plotting to kill Jesus, he says, well, after all, it's a good thing for one guy to die for the people. And he speaks prophetically. He is the high priest. He has the offices of, office of high priest. And God actually uses him unwittingly to prophesy about Messiah. And so now uh, John brings this out. Uh, he wants to... to illustrate to us that this judgment upon Jesus had already been decided. And so, uh, as I mentioned, in eternity past, yes. But also recently, when these guys convened a council to kill him, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They also wanted to kill Lazarus. So, uh, in Acts chapter 2, I love this. I've quoted this many times because it's just such a telling verse. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost and Peter, you know, goes from and we'll see cowering at the enemy's fire to uh, getting up there uh, and uh, and preaching the gospel. Three thousand people um, believe that day. Well, in the middle of that talk, when he's preaching to the crowds, he says in Acts 2.23, he says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. See, this isn't my opinion. Uh, you have taken by lawless hands, that's what they're doing now, and have crucified and put him to death. So this isn't something that is new to Jesus. They're not springing anything on him. And John makes clear of that, that this is something that had already been plotted, and now it's being carried out. So, And I think that it's important to John that we connect the dots on that. Verse 15, and so Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. You know, John, in his gospel, he, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, which is great. I mean, a great characterization. But he also calls himself another disciple. I totally believe this is John. Nobody else makes sense in this context here. So uh, being the writer of the gospel, so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So John has access, and he's going with the officers and all that, uh, and goes into the courtyard, goes into the gate, uh, and goes, gets through. So he's connected somehow, and he knew Caiaphas, or he knew Caiaphas' household, or he probably knew the servants, because he knew who Malchus was, remember, back in the garden. So Peter stood at the door outside, and then the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her, the, the girl who kept the door, who kept the door and brought Peter in. So John is connected and he goes, hey, you know, this is my buddy. And she lets him in. So he gets Peter access to the high priest's home. And they're in the courtyard outside. Again, these two houses are close together. Annas is, is on this side. Caiaphas is on this side right now. They might be at Caiaphas's house. Because Annas would just have to walk across the driveway. It was very close. Uh, or they may be actually going literally to Annas' house and then going to Caiaphas' afterwards. So uh, it, it indicates here they're going into Annas' house, so probably started there. But Peter stood at the door outside 
and then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl, verse 17, who kept the door, said to Peter, You are not also one of his, this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. This is Peter's first denial. Interesting. This is a non-combative, non-confrontational question. As a matter of fact, she's alluding to the fact she knows that John is Jesus' disciple because she says, you're, you're not one of this man's disciples also, is what's implied. And Peter denies. He says, no. And so this is the first time that he says, no, I, no, no I, don't, I don't know. I know. So verse 18, now the servants and the officers who had made the fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So, yeah, Peter was cold, but I think he also wanted to blend in. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus, that Peter could see Jesus. And, and, and we'll get to that as we go. But he, he stood, it says, that in the other gospels say he was sitting. And there's, there's some stuff going on with the speech. I'm not going to take a lot of time on it. But... If I walked into the break room in my company and I saw a bunch of guys sitting at the tables, and I'd say, what are you guys standing around for? It's an idiom. And so idiomatically, he's saying that Peter was there. He's not talking about posture. Uh, he's talking about him being in a stationary place. So in verse 19, the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. So Annas is interrogating him now. He's saying, who are your followers and what are you teaching them? I want to know. Give me the dirt, Jesus. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. There's no hidden message. There would be a group of people that would raise up uh, as time went on called the Gnostics that would claim to have secret knowledge. There are groups today, Ooh, we've, got the, we've got the inside track on Jesus. Join our group. We'll give you the goof. We'll give you the stuff. No, nonsense. Readily knowable. And, and that's how it's always been. And, and Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, this is public stuff. This isn't hidden. So Jesus is saying, I, I'm not, you're asking me to tell you what I'm, who my guys are and what I'm teaching them. I, I haven't said anything privately. It's been available. So then Jesus, uh, here, he's not being un uncooperative here, but he begins to assert his legal rights under Jewish law. And he says in verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And so what he's doing in this is he's saying, look, you haven't called any witnesses. Now, he knew that his rights under Jewish law and under Roman law, we'll get to that later, but uh, were that they had to call witnesses. We'll look next week in depth at all of the illegalities of these trials. But uh, I want to move on here so that we can wrap up. Uh, verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? He's accused of disrespecting the high priest. Wow. Here's God in the flesh. 
God getting smacked by some guy. Also, by the way, who is the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is far above the order of Levi that these guys were. Here's their boss. This is the very beginning of the abuse that Jesus would suffer between now and 3 o'clock in the afternoon when he gave up his spirit, when he died. Interesting. Verse 23, and Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Prove it. But if well, why do you strike me? So he asked both Annas and the officer, officer to justify their abuse. Neither one of them could answer. They didn't have anything. And we know that the trumped-up charges that they come up with as he goes further and goes through the, the next five trials are just that. There is nothing to accuse this guy with. And therefore, verse 24, that Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Again, he's bound. Like, ooh, I hope he doesn't get away. There's a total lack of connecting what Jesus is about here. Um, but what he's doing here now, as he's sending him to Caiaphas, he, see, Annas is, like I said, he's the big cheese. You know, he's the guy that everybody answers to, whether they're high priest or not. And, and so he is now finished examining Jesus. Now he's going to send him to the legal high priest for a legal trial. This is a totally a sham, what he was doing. Uh, and now he's going to send him on to Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Gee, I wonder how he's going to decide um, to be adjudicated there. So it's a, he is... I'm not going to go there. So this is going to be the second trial that Jesus has, the trial of Caiaphas. Um, and I think that we're going to, uh, I'm going to show you, this is, remember I talked about the sacred pit in Caiaphas's home. There's a slide here. Looking down, see on the left, you walk along, uh, it's like on the first story, kind of walk up some stairs to go into the house. And then there's this big hole that's probably six feet across. And you look down, and you see where it gets square looking down into it. There's like a square area, and then there's a round area below that. This is a pit. It's a deep pit, and it's inside Caiaphas's house. And that's where Caiaphas, when he wanted somebody there that he didn't want to have friendly relationship with, he put him in the hole. And he literally did this with prisoners. It's assumed that that's what he did with Jesus when they, he received Jesus until he got everybody together and got all that stuff worked out that they lowered Jesus down into this hole. Now, looking up, there are four walls and a hole in the ceiling. There is no way out. Now, they put some steps. I, I can't remember if it's a ladder or some real steep steps going down into it now so that you can go down and look around and look up. But um, the, the Catholic Church as they've done with many of the antiquities in Israel, they've sort of taken over governance of it. And, and I'm glad for that standpoint because they've really preserved the antiquities, but uh, you know, they sort of make a shrine out of all that stuff. Uh, but they, they call this the sacred pit uh, because it was the pit that likely where Jesus was held. So we're going to stop there. We'll go into the next five trials that Jesus had next week. And uh, we'll pull some things out there. So uh, with that, let's pray. Father, thank you, 
Lord, for this look into your word at, at, at just the things that Jesus was beginning to suffer, just on the beginning of the suffering, knowing, Lord, that he signed up for it, knowing that he did it on purpose, knowing that it was predestined, that, that it was worked out long before this world existed, that he would come, step into, or you'd send your son to step into your own creation, and, and then to grow up and, and to model a life that's worth living and then to suffer at the hands of your creation. Uh, I, I wouldn't have done it that way, but I'm not you. So I'm grateful. We're grateful, Lord, for our hero, for Jesus, the one who did all of this, that we wouldn't have to taste death. And so thank you, Lord, for this account. I pray, Father, that as we go through this week, that you bring to our remembrance the things you'd have us to uh, to ponder and pray by your Holy Spirit, you would just come and dwell, Lord, among us. Bless the rest of our time fellowshipping here today and pray that you would have your way with us, Lord. We're yours. We acknowledge that in Jesus' name. Amen.